you would turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, we'll read verses 16 through 21 in just a moment. Let me ask you, what do you think it would be like in this moment, in this room, for us to stand in the physical presence of the risen and glorified Christ. I mean, what, what would we do with ourselves? What would we say? The, the Apostle John, the inspired author of the Gospel of John, gives us a firsthand report of having that experience in writing the book of Revelation. And his description is perhaps somewhat Surprising. He describes his experience in this way in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 and following. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow, His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now perhaps we might expect that to stand in the presence of the risen glorified, ascended, and reigning Lord Jesus Christ in his holy glory would provoke an overwhelming sense of fear for he is glorious in power and holiness and while redeemed by his blood, we are sinners still. But this kind of experience is not relegated to his post-resurrection presence. In the days of his incarnation and earthly ministry, we see just this sort of thing happening time And again, remember the miracle in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when Jesus told Peter after a fruitless night of fishing to cast his nets into the water again, and they were miraculously filled to overflowing with fish. Here is Peter's response, Luke 5, 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Or you may recall the transfiguration of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, where we read in chapter 17, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Verse 5, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, 
they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. Now, what's going on with all of this? Here's what's going on. Jesus was truly man, flesh and blood, and fully God. And so there were times in his earthly ministry described in the Gospels when those near him glimpsed something of his holy divine glory and in light of his holiness and their sinfulness, it is appropriate that they quake and fall down in the presence of the Holy One of God. In our text this morning, we find just this sort of thing happening. We find the disciples witness a miracle a sign to help them see who Jesus truly is. And in the presence of his power as an expression of his holy glory, they are frightened. But In this text, it is our privilege to not only behold Christ in his glory, but also to hear his voice speaking comfort to his disciples in their fear and by extension to each one of us as we experience fear and anxiety in our lives. So, let's read John chapter 6, starting in verse 16. Let us behold something of the glory of Jesus Christ, and let us pay careful attention to these words, for this is the word of God. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. All right, I have two points in this sermon, two simple points to help us navigate through this text. The first is observe the sign, and second, listen to the Savior. So first point, observe the sign. By way of context, Jesus has just departed from the scene of a familiar story to many of us. The miraculous feeding of 5,000 men and untold women and children as Jesus multiplied five barley loaves and two small fish into a feast that satisfied the hunger of all present with a dozen baskets of leftovers to boot. We find immediately before our text in verse 15 that the crowd's response to the miracle was inappropriate. Jesus fed the multitude as a sign to point to his coming as the incarnation of the Son of God who came to save and satisfy needy souls. And the miracle of the bread was a sign that was intended to point them to the reality that Jesus is the bread of life that comes down from heaven to save and satisfy 
the needy. They miss the sign. Instead of seeing the sign, they instead see Jesus as a useful political pawn. In verse 15, right before our text, we read the crowd was going to try and seize him and force him to become their king. That's an actual interesting idea. Make someone your king. But in other words, they intended to make him the leader of a revolution against the Roman rulers so that he would set up the Jewish people for a new era of victory and glory. And we read Jesus knew that's what they were thinking and he takes off. He, we are informed that he withdrew. Withdrew to a nearby mountain to be alone. Okay, our text. Now, it is evening. It's getting dark. And the disciples went down to the Sea of Galilee, jumped into a boat, and they head out toward Capernaum. The sun goes down as they row across the sea. It is now dark, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. A sudden storm kicks up as they row. The waves rise and break upon the boat, and A strong wind begins beating against these guys as they row furiously against the raging storm. And these kinds of storms were common in that region. As New Testament scholar D.A. Carson writes, the Sea of Galilee lies about 600 feet below sea level, and so cool air from the south can rush in to displace the warm, moist air over the lake, churning up the water in a violent squall. And that's what they were experiencing. These guys are slowly making headway as they row across the sea through the storm. We read they rowed about three or four miles and in the middle of the sea and in the middle of the storm, they behold something astonishing. In fact, they see something that terrifies them. They see Jesus who was not with them as they set out for Capernaum, now they see him walking across the raging waves, walking on top of the water, coming toward them. If you are familiar with this story, this is a very familiar story. Don't, let us not be so overly familiar to cease amazement at what is happening here. Picture, if you can, this sight. This would have been an astonishing sight. Their rabbi, their teacher, calmly walking through the wind on top of the crashing waves, coming toward them. Understandably, verse 19, they were frightened. I mean, who has, who is a category for this sort of thing? This is a humanly impossible feat. It is humanly impossible not only to walk across water, to say nothing of walking on a raging sea. Even in a controlled environment, this is an impossible task, humanly speaking. I know because I Googled it. (laughs) And so the fastest man on earth, Usain Bolt, you may remember him from the Olympics, I think he's retired now. He has a speed that tops out at about 33 feet per second. But to run on water, you'd have to zip over the top of the water three times as fast. You would have to run 100 feet per second. That means run a football field in less than three seconds. 
This is humanly impossible. This is beyond any human power. And they are frightened because they just don't have a category for this kind of power. They are frightened because they are in the presence of Jesus as he reveals to them something of his power and holy glory. They are encountering and observing his transcendence and power and they are afraid. But as we read these verses... We find ourselves in the presence of the divine Son of God. New Testament scholar Edward Clink helps us understand what's going on here as we observe his power, his glory, as we catch a glimpse of him here walking on the water. We are observing his complete dominion over the sea as he strides across the waves. Edward Clink writes, what the disciples saw was nothing less than the creator in control of his creation. There are no categories that adequately describe or contain such an event. Only the absorption of this category into the identity of God can explain what happened and about whom it speaks. Listen, at that moment, they were undoubtedly in the presence of God. And perhaps Old Testament texts that these disciples would have been familiar with would have come to mind in that moment. For instance, Job chapter 9, 4 and following, where Job says, describing God, he is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens, listen, and trampled the waves of the sea. It is appropriate that all who stand in the presence of God in his holiness tremble in fear. Now, other so-called gods can have this effect. For instance, the God of Islam, Allah, he is considered to be high and holy and to be feared. Or take the pagan gods of the disciples' day a couple thousand years ago. They supposedly controlled the elements of nature. They were given by these people the ability to terrify them Here's a massive difference. First of all, Jesus is the true and living God. And Jesus reveals what God is truly like, that he is holy and mighty and powerful and worthy of trembling and falling down on our faces before him, and, and he is full of mercy and grace. Unlike the pagan gods who must be placated with gifts and certain kinds of ritual to, to push away their anger. No, Jesus comes down to earth as the gift of heaven to give to those who have nothing to offer to God except need. So that leads us to our second point. Listen to the Savior. So we survey the scene, raging storm, furious rowing toward the shore, their teacher comes walking across the waves. They catch a glimpse of his divine glory. They are frightened. Verse 20, but, but he said to them, it is I. 
do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because it is I, Jesus Christ. This is no phantom or ghost. This is Jesus, the flesh and blood Son of God. And, and this declaration of his identity clearly had Jesus' intended effect. This clearly had the result that Jesus intended because as he speaks to his terrified disciples, verse 21, then they were glad. They were scared. They were afraid. But Jesus only has to speak, it is I, I am here, do not be afraid, and their fear turned to gladness and joy. I mean, one, one might rightfully expect that an up-close encounter with God would provoke fear and trembling. It is appropriate in the presence of our holy God. Here in the presence of the divine Son of God revealing his glory and power, Jesus, Jesus, he speaks tenderly, kindly, lovingly to them. Do not be afraid. There is no need to fear. There is no need to fear the storm. There is no need to be afraid of me because it is I. Do not be afraid. And their fear turns to gladness. And so here we find what we find repeatedly throughout Scripture. Biblical pattern. Trembling and Fear in the presence of the holy, followed by a declaration of grace and comfort from God himself. Isaiah chapter 6 describes this kind of experience clearly and helpfully for us. When we read in Isaiah 6, 1 and following, In the year of King Uzziah, the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And let me add as well that I know this experience personally. Let me share just a brief version of my story. I grew up in the church, grew up in a family that went to church at least three times a week, was taught the gospel from a very young age. When I was five, my mom 
asked me if I wanted to go to hell. I replied, absolutely not. So she led me in a quote-unquote sinner's prayer, and yet my heart was completely unchanged. And as I grew into my teenage years, including those teenage years being at Living Hope Church, the church where I now pastor, I cast off my parents' authority. I cast off all authority. There are people in the church that I serve now that remember me as a teenager, angry, Walkman on. No one under 30 has any idea what that is. <laughs> Listening to Nirvana. Sneaking out to smoke cigarettes at the playground across the street while the preaching was going on. And I wish I could say that God arrested me and woke me up in those teen years, but no, I ran from God, and as soon as I had a chance, I turned my back on everything to do with God, ran as fast and as hard as I could into the world. By the time I was in my late teens, I was an everyday partier. I thought that I had found joy in life and contentment. As I moved into my 20s, the drugs got harder, the drug use more severe. By the time I was 27, I was a devastated man, riddled with guilt. I had restrained myself from no sin, to my shame. 27, broken guilty, panicked, depressed. Just wanted to get a handle on my life. Wanted to be manageable. A friend of mine invited me to attend a 12-step recovery meeting for drug addicts, alcoholics. And sometime that summer in June, 18 years ago, when considering my life, and God used some of the principles that were in the, that recovery meeting, even though it wasn't a Christian meeting, principles like submission to God, turning from sin, confessing wrongs to God. It was in considering these things that I had a sudden awareness of the presence of God. And it was terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. I, when I read Isaiah 6, as I began to read the Bible, I, I just went, that, that's me. Terrified. I just, I knew who I was. In the presence of the holiness of God, I felt like Isaiah. He says, woe is me. He's literally saying, I should just sort of evaporate. I should dissolve in the presence of the holiness of God. And reflexively, in that moment, Suddenly, the gospel that I had heard throughout my childhood and that I knew and could recite to others came alive. And I suddenly understood, this is why I must have Jesus. This is why I need Jesus. I deserve to die immediately in my sin. And so reflexively, I, I, I ran to Christ. I ran to Christ. The cross made sense. I ran to him and he received me. I had nothing, nothing to give him except my sin and my need. 
and he received me. I cannot believe that I'm standing up here. I cannot believe I'm a pastor. What? I lead the church that I went to as a teenager. There were no prophetic words back then. People had heard that I had died. And I almost had a couple of times. But because, only explanation grace of God, because of the grace of God, only because of the grace of God, I get to stand in front of the church I lead and I love as a trophy of God's grace. There are, there are, there are women in that church that when I was a teenager prayed with my mom for God to save me. Can I encourage any parents who are here right now? If, if you have a child that is turning away or has turned from Jesus, your heart is broken over it, and you have been praying, and it has been a long time, and you're losing heart. Don't give up hope. Listen, I, this is what God can do with the worst kids. They can turn them into people who love Jesus. Don't give up praying. Don't give up crying to God and entrusting those you love to the grace of God. So, what can we take away and apply from this text? Some suggestions first, simply this. As we behold the power and glory of Jesus Christ in this text, it is only right for us to humble ourselves before him. And so Edward Klink again says, the church is to kneel at the feet of Jesus, the feet that walk on water. And, and, and let, me, let me address any who are present you're, that are not Christians. You're, you're not a believer. You're just checking out the church. Maybe a friend invited you. You found the website. You haven't put your faith in Christ. I want to impress upon you in love that God is holy. And in our sin, we have rebelled against him in opposing his will. He is the king. He is the Lord. Jesus is Lord. And we are to kneel before him. But listen, I have good news. Sometimes I'll hear the gospel shorthand is simply this, Jesus is Lord. That is gloriously true and cannot be disconnected from the good news of the gospel. But it is insufficient. In fact, a bare declaration that Jesus is Lord should be terrifying for rebels. But he is not only Lord, he is Savior. He is the Lord who humbled himself to come and die as our substitute, bearing the holy wrath we have earned in our sin. And all who come to him with empty hands of faith, offering nothing but need and sin, find him happily embracing and receiving and forgiving all of our sins. And if you have not put your faith in Christ, my friend, oh, 
this day can be the day of salvation. This moment, if you will turn from sin and self to this glorious one. Second, we find here a reminder that he is the sovereign creator and Lord and therefore rules the wind and the waves so much so that he can just go for a leisurely walk in the middle of a storm. And therefore, we are to understand he is sovereign over every storm in life that we experience. You in a storm? A bunch of us are in storms. If you're not in a storm, just wait a couple of minutes. The storm is coming. It's life in this fallen world. Maybe the storm is that painful and difficult relationship or the rebellious child. Maybe, I would guess in a, in a group this large, there are, there are folks here. You, you know the persistent, unrelenting experience of suffering. Physical, emotional. When, when your head pops off the pillow, if you were able to sleep, you find yourself in the storm. It struggles with your school, college, work. Maybe it's just simply the chaos of this world. Or the daily experience of heartfelt, sorrowful struggles against temptation and sin. Oh, listen. In your, in your storm, in your storm, hear the Savior. In your storm, Listen to the Savior. Declare over you. It is I. I am present. Do not be afraid. 19th century Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle writes on this text. Many of the things which now frighten Christians and fill them with anxiety would cease to frighten them if they would endeavor to see the Lord Jesus in all. Ordering every providence and overruling everything so not a hair falls to the ground with him. They are happy who can hear his voice through the thickest clouds and darkness and above the loudest winds and storms saying, It is I, do not be afraid. You in a storm, you're not in a storm, the storm is Coming in your storm, we remember the promise of Matthew 28 where Jesus says, Behold, I am with you to the end of the age, that he will never leave us or forsake us. And we do well to cultivate a conscious awareness of his presence that that we hear his voice strengthening, comforting us in our fears. Let let, Let me suggest that you actually take this simple phrase, Jesus declaring, It is I, do not be afraid, and hide it in your heart. Hide it in your heart because you're going to need it. If you don't need it this morning, you're going to need it in the future. You're going to need it for a friend who's struggling or suffering or someone that you love. Hide in your heart this simple phrase, call to mind in the storm, Jesus who's promised never to leave us or forsake us, declaring, I am present with you. You do not need to be afraid. And as this text concludes, we read in the last verse that, They immediately, Jesus gets in the boat, they immediately landed at the place they were going with Christ in the boat. So too with us, with Christ in the boat of our lives, he will bring us to that 
promised land in his return. As we make our way to that day, a day that is simply called the day in scripture, the day of Christ, he is always present. He's always present personally, skillfully guiding us to the shore of a promised land, a new heavens and new earth where we will see him. And we will tremble, but we will tremble with joy. Fear banished. No more fear. No more sorrow. No more suffering. No more death. And in that day, we will declare with the psalmist in Psalm 107, he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Do you long for a desired haven? All who entrust themselves to Christ may declare who holds our faith when fears arise, who stands above the stormy trial, who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ. Here's who. Christ, our hope in life and death. Yes. Let me close with this. Oh, in just a little while, a little while in comparison with the glorious eternity that is coming when Jesus returns. Just a little while. It won't be very long. When, when we are living forever in perfect joy in the presence of Christ, we will look back on this life with its 70 or 80 years and be like, millisecond? Maybe? It won't be very long where we won't have to imagine the answer to the question I asked at the start of the sermon. What will it be like to stand in the physical presence of the risen and glorified Christ? We will. That's our destiny. To stand, to tremble, to kneel with joy before our Lord and Savior. And in that day, Oh, we will see all the more clearly how he has been with us, guiding every step of our lives as he brings us to that great day. And to paraphrase C.S. Lewis in The Last Battle in the Chronicles of Narnia, we will understand in that moment that all of our life before that moment was just the prologue to the great story. And we will begin chapter one of a glorious story that goes on and on without end and gets better and better and better through all eternity. And we will know that he has been true and he has been faithful to us.